This is a semi-weekly podcast to update you on the volcanic activity of the weeks. I'm one of your hosts, Alessandro Mus. I'm your other host, Corinne Jorgensen. We're PhD students at the University of Geneva. We study volcanoes and are here to give you all the hot volcano news. First, the focus of the week and then the volcano news from the last two weeks. Let's get to it. Okay, for the focus of today, we have a very special guest, Lisa Ricci, a PhD student in geochemistry at the University of Perugia. We are going to chat a little bit with her about a very interesting and innovative method to estimate the emplacement temperature of pyroclastic density currents from charcoal analysis, a method that she recently applied to pyroclastic density currents from the 2015 Calboco eruption. So hi, Lisa. We are very happy to have you here with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Alessandro. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Before delving into the methodologies, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the general context. So Lisa, what actually are pyroclastic density currents and why is it important to determine their emplacement temperatures? Well, pyroclastic density currents are one of the most hazardous phenomenon that a volcanic eruption can generate. They are gravity currents constituted by gas and particles produced by the collapse of an eruptive column or of a lava dome. They are characterized by a high velocity and an extensive destructive capacity. In addition, pyroclastic density currents are able to maintain high temperatures during the flow and during the emplacement, and this behavior improves if they are confined. These constitute main factors that need to be taken into account in the volcanic hazard assessment. In this view, a tool that allows us to estimate their emplacement temperature is of primary importance. Tell us a little bit about your methodology. How does the wood register the temperatures? What do you specifically analyze? The methodology takes advantage from the direct relation that exists between the rank of charcoalification of wood fragments and the charring temperature. When a volcanic eruption occurs, it is very common to find charcoal fragments embedded within pyroclastic density currents. These charcoal pieces are wood fragments carried away and heated within the hot flow and deposited almost instantaneously. The parameter we measure is the reflectance, which is the fraction of incident light radiation reflected from a sample surface under oil. Charcoal reflectance is directly correlated with the temperature experienced by the charcoal during its formation. Okay, so this is really cool, really interesting. So in your study, you focused on the pyroclastic flows of the 2015 Calbuco eruption. So what kind of eruption are we talking about here? And how do you do this wood sampling? How does this work? The 2015 Calbuco eruption was an explosive one and was mainly constituted of two main pulses, each of them accompanied by the generation of an eruptive column of at least 15 kilometers height. The collapse of these columns produced pyroclastic density currents mainly directed in south-southwest and northeast flanks. Well, a good sampling is crucial in order to produce valid data. In this case, we first need to be sure that the tree we sample is in situ. And this is not trivial, because for sure the strength of a pyroclastic density current is enough to eradicate and transport vegetation. Then, we need to understand the deposit that incorporates the tree. 
as an example, are we observing the top of pyroclastic deposit 1 or the bottom of pyroclastic deposit 2? Last but not least, we need to sample completely charred fragments because the presence of resin can create problems during the analysis. Hmm, and what are the pros and cons of this technique specifically? The main con is time, because these analyses require a quite long procedure to prepare samples and, in order to have a good statistic representation, we need to perform lots of measurements. But cons are for sure more, because we talk about a non-expensive techniques that returns accurate emplacement temperatures. As demonstrated in the paper by Pensaital 2015, of which I suggest reading to all interested listeners, charcoal reflectance analysis is comparable to classical techniques usually applied to estimate the emplacement temperature of igneous brides. In conclusion, we can affirm it is a great alley in volcanological research. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. We really enjoyed chatting with you and hearing about your work, and we hope to have you back with us soon so we can chat about your other projects you're working on and maybe even have a nice Swiss fondue together. Thanks to you, Alessandra and Corinne. I hope to see you soon with another nice chat together. Let's meet in a volcano top soon. <laughs> Bye. It's October 11th, 2022 at the time of recording, and this is your quick update. Okay, it's been a busy last couple of weeks, and so we'll start in Americas. Okay, yes, this means we get to start with a plume competition. Alessandro, who do you think won? Okay, I will go for the easiest one. Salankaya. Ah, pretty much. Salankaya, we had a tie between Salankaya in Peru and Nevada's de Ruiz in Colombia, we both had a 7.6-kilometer plume on September 30th and October 5th, respectively. Haha, Nice, Avankaya. This week, she managed to... She pulled it off this week. She pulled it off. Two weeks, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe, 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 maybe next week she's gonna... She'd be the... I think she can do it. She true number one. We also had a good attempt from Senge in Ecuador, who gave us a 7.3-kilometer plume on October 7th. This followed a more active phase, which on October 6th, when there were some incandescent avalanches spotted. Other runners-ups include Papaquetapatel in Mexico with a 6.4-kilometer plume, Fuego in Guatemala with a 5.2-kilometer plume, and Ventador in Ecuador, who also tried to win with a 5.2-kilometer plume. I'm sorry. Sorry, dudes, but you're just not, you're not up in the seven kilometer echelon, you know? Yeah, but you, you didn't use the correct words for saying that. You, you cannot say that he tried to win with a 5.2. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> anyway, at Villa Rica in Chile, as reported by VolcanoDiscovery.com, on October 2nd, there are reports of uh, local observers seeing a nighttime glow, as well as steam and ash emission. The Geology and Mining Service of Chile reports fluctuation in the activity at the Lava Lake. At Nevados del Chilan in Chile, there was a 5.5 kilometer plume on October 11th, which also generated a pumice and ash flow. And this is reported by Sir Nam Gomin, which is the Service of Geology and Mine in Chile. In Alaska at Pavlov, uh, we saw a fusy explosive eruption at moderate level on October 8th. Uh, the lava flow in some cases is melting snow and ice and causing debris flow and lahars. 
At Trident, always in Alaska, the earthquake swarm that started on August 28th is still ongoing. And on September 30, the alert level was raised from green to yellow, as the earthquakes are becoming shallower. Most have been deep, like 25 kilometers, but some are 7, 5, and up to 0 kilometer depth. This might be gas moved or magma movement. So, going to Europe, Stromboli was pretty busy this week. On September 29th, a very strong eruption occurred. Yeah, I get the info while I was in a congress in Catania. I'm the Mama Herna. I was just on the wrong volcano. Okay, so this stronger than usual event actually produced what is thought to be a pyroclastic flow which flowed down the Schiare del Foco. But that's not the only event in the last weeks. Also, on October 3rd and 4th, the activity was still high, with lava overflows glowing in the Scara de Fuoco and the classical spattering activity that we know and love from Stromboli. On October 9th, after the lava overflow, there was also a large pyroclastic flow, which has dominated the Scara de Fuoco. And you can find lots of videos and pictures of the event. It's pretty crazy. According to ENGV, this big dude seems to be generated by a partial collapse of the northern sector of the crater rim. This event has been followed by lava flow that was active for much of the days. Up to today, the activity is still elevated. The lava flow has decreased in activity a little bit according to the webcam imagery, but the pyroclastic flows are still going and showing no signs of stop. A Pitot de la Fognes, La Reunion, the activity remains fairly consistent with the previous weeks, with pulsing lava fountains from the main spatter cone, which fed into lava tunnels. However, on September 29th, there was elevated activity with a higher tremor, indicating an influx of magma, which was so coming out from the main cone. The lava flow developed into lava arms, which mostly ran through the tunnels and emerged down slope several kilometers, though still in an habitat area. On October 5th, the eruption seems to have stopped, so we will keep you updated. In the northern Kyrils, a large volcano saw Strombolian activity on September 29th and a 3-kilometer plume. The Shivaluk in the Kamchatka region had an eruptive activity as normal and produced several above 3-kilometer tall plumes. Moving south to Asia, there was a lot of activity from Nishinoshima in Japan. There were many explosive events, with a maximum height of the plume around 3.7 kilometers these weeks. At Sakurajima in Japan, the eruption has continued as per usual, but notably on October 9th, there was a stronger eruption with a 1.8 kilometer plume and blocks which were going 600 to 900 meters away from the crater. That's pretty far. That's pretty scary. Yeah. yeah. We also saw activity from Swanazajima in Japan. Sumeru and Ibu in Indonesia. At Sorek Marapui in Sumatra, there has been some heightened activity. This volcano last erupted in 1986 with a VEI-1 eruption. On October 3rd, the PVMBG reported 146 volcanic tectonic earthquakes since September 29th. This might indicate an increased pressure from the hydrothermal system or magma in the volcano. This is kind of an open question at this moment but the alert level was raised to 1. We also saw some newer activity from Mayon in the uh, Philippines. On October 10th, the alert level was raised up to 2 due to elevated seismic unrest and SO2 emission. The SO2 emission was about 391 tons per day. 
Finally, in New Zealand, White Island has been busy with the alert level at 2. There was some ash and steam emissions and high SO2 emissions, so that's like around 200 uh, tons per day. But of course, we will discuss TAPO as well. The seismic activity at TAPO continues at a reduced rate. On September 29th, there were earthquakes reported between 4 and 13 km depth, with a max magnitude of about 3.3 on October 3rd. The uplift is reported to be 60 mm per year since May 2022. The alert level is still at 1. So that's the news for the last two weeks. Thanks so much to our sources, VolcanoDiscovery.com, the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program, uh, Sir Konami, PVMVG, and INGV. And thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you so much to spend some time with us. Thank again to Lisa for her time and see you in two weeks. Okay, bye. Mayon in uh, Philippines. We shouldn't bring some sandwich if this volcano is going to erupt. It's not going to erupt mayonnaise. Zero out of ten. No. Okay. Please, please keep that though. <laughs> so, I like to fire. The Dancing Podcast. The Breadcast. The Breadcast? Yeah, with Maya.